Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning. Hey, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Church on the Trail. You know what? I'm going to lose this plaid jacket because Richard said I'm going to get dunked, and I'm not going to get dunked in my plaid jacket. So look, I'm so glad that you're here. There's lots of places you could be, but I, here's what I know. I know that God has ordained every single person that is here. I know that he has some good news for he as a matter of fact he's got the greatest news ever for us this morning and if you would let me pray that's right that's right great news this morning and if you'd let me pray real quick then we'll get started lord we love you today we thank you so much for being who you say you are for being able to do every single thing that you say you can do lord we thank you that 2000 years ago you willingly went to that cross for us and you rose from the grave to prove that you are who you say you are. Lord, we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray and lift up every single person that is here, that you would open hearts, you would open minds, and you would open uh, spirits. Lord, your word says that, that, that lives are transformed by the renewing of the mind, and so I pray this morning that that would happen. And so, Lord, I lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you may know this, maybe you don't know this, but I'm graduating, oddly enough, at 53, I'm graduating from Liberty with a Master of Theological Studies in about three weeks. No, that's not why I said it. That's not why I said it. I, I, I'm making a point with it. I'm making a point with it, and that's this. We've studied a lot of ologies, O-L-O-G-I-E-S. That's the name of this message this morning is that it ain't about the ologies, but I've learned a lot of ologies while, while being in seminary. Eschatology, you know, the study of, of the end times and and ecclesiology, the study of, of the church, and soteriology, and, and theology, the study of God. And, it's all, and all of that obviously is grounded in the Bible. And frankly, I love it. I love reading it. I love studying it. I love discussing it. And I really love sitting down and talking with somebody that doesn't believe one word of that Bible. And so there's lots of these ologies. And I've been thinking about this first Easter as, uh, as your pastor. And I feel so privileged to be leading Church on the Trail. And then at the same time, I, I, I feel so completely insufficient for the job. But somehow, God seems to show up every day and do the thing that He does in spite of my weaknesses. So anyway, I've been thinking about, uh, about today. And looking back at the biblical text uh, from, from today, 2,000 years ago, and I'm thinking about all these seminary classes, they're all in my mind and the texts that describe the weeks leading up to and then the weeks leading you know, after the uh, Christ's resurrection, and it made me think about all of these ologies, these ologies, and do they make a difference? And so I would say, guess what we're not going to talk about today? Can you all guess what we're not going to talk about today? Ologies. We ain't talking about no ologies. Guess what the guys immediately after the resurrection, what they preached on that first Easter, right after that first Easter? They didn't preach ologies. They preached a dead man walking. That's what they preached. They preached there's supposed to be a guy, a dead guy in that tomb, and, then, and he wasn't there. Y'all, that's what Peter and James and John and Andrew, that's what all of them preached. And so we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about whether or not it really even makes a difference for us in 2019. And so that begs this question, how do we know what's true? And I am sure... If you're like me, all of you have asked that question. How do you know what's true about God? Is it because mama said so? 
You know, is it because some priest said so? Is it because you bought some Kindle book on Amazon and that Kindle book said so? And while those things, they may be just fine, those things don't act as a sufficient basis for saving faith. And I think the Apostle Peter, who's Jesus' best friend, I think he had these same kinds of questions. He had been one of the very first ones that signed up to follow Jesus. And he took Jesus at his word. And he got a, a bunch of other people to follow Christ with him. But then when Jesus was put on trial and Jesus was murdered, everything in Peter's world just came crashing down. In his mind and in his guy's mind, Jesus wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to inaugurate the kingdom. He was supposed to kick Rome's tail out of Israel. And so they're all thinking, how can God have let this happen? And if Jesus is so loving and so in control, why had he left Peter and all of the other disciples alone by themselves in this big mess? And so I think Peter's struggle, his, his faith struggle, it had gotten so bad that he outright denied even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And the Gospels record all of that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament, they all record that. Every, but everything changes on this Sunday morning 2,000-something years ago. And the book of Mark, and we've been walking at Church on the Trail, we've been walking through the gospel according to Mark, and obviously it reaches, it reaches its pinnacle in uh, Mark 16. And I want to read you a couple of verses, starting in verse 5. It says, and the text says, And entering the tomb... They, which was the they as some of Jesus' followers, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. And Matthew records it, and Luke records it, and, and John records it. And if we back ourselves up just a few days, Jesus is arrested in the garden. And when he's arrested in the garden, Peter kind of follows that. He's almost like he's lurking behind trees and kind of following all of that. Peter had promised Jesus that he wouldn't deny him. He promised that he wouldn't deny him. The third time he denies him, Jesus locks eyes with Peter. The text says he gazed into Peter's eyes. And Peter had just denied him again. That gaze caused Peter to break down. The text says he broke down and wept in shame and guilt. Because he had promised Jesus, far be it for me, I will never deny you. And he did it three times. Any of y'all ever promise God that you're going to do something and then not follow through on it? Me too. So Peter... Shame-filled, guilt-filled, the, 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 the gospel according to John records that Peter goes into the tomb, the empty tomb. He walks into that tomb, and he's filled with shame, and he's filled with guilt, and he's discouraged, and he's depressed, and he's defeated, and he's doubting. But he walks out probably as the most important leader in this new Christian thing. And from that point on, all of the guys, all of the disciples, and all of Christ's followers, they're looking to Peter as, uh, to be their leader. Well, what was it that changed him? It wasn't a bunch of ologies. It wasn't no soteria. It wasn't any of that stuff. It wasn't like he said, oh, oh, now 
I get the soteriological and eschatological ramifications of Jesus' incarnation, res, uh, crucifixion, and resurrection. No, it wasn't all them big fancy words. That's not at all what he did. He had come face to face with a tomb that should have had a body in it, y'all, and it didn't have a body in it. It wasn't all those big words. It wasn't some big fancy theology. It was an empty tomb. And I want us, me and you this morning, I want us to kind of kind of put ourselves in the place of Peter this morning. Because most of us, at least many of us, I would probably say are like him. We have questions. We have doubts. Things maybe just don't add up like we think they're supposed to. Maybe like Peter, you feel like he's disappointed you. Maybe like Peter, you feel like you've disappointed him. Peter had denied Jesus so many times that here's what he thought. Our relationship is just beyond repair. It's just busted beyond repair because I have let you down so bad, Peter thought. And I want us to experience what Peter kind of experienced on that day. So I want to I do two things. I want to confront you with the fact, the fact of the empty tomb. Number one, the fact of the empty tomb. And number two, I want to kind of let Peter explain to you the implications of of that empty tomb. And so the fact of the empty tomb first, believe it or not, that that tomb was empty that morning when they got there is really a fairly agreed upon fact. Obviously not everybody believes that Jesus rose from the dead. But just about every scholar, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, whatever, whatever, they agree that a man named Jesus actually lived. They believe that a man named Jesus was actually executed by the Romans, that he was buried, and that on the third day, the tomb where he was put was found empty. On those points, really, nobody disagrees. But the question that's debated is how the tomb got empty. Not that it was empty, but how did the tomb get empty? And there's really three options, other than some crazy flying saucer beamed him up or something. There's really three kind of options that get thrown out there. Number one is that somebody stole the body. Somebody stole the body, and this myth grew up that Jesus had resurrected. And if that's the case, the question is, who did it? Who's the suspects? There's really probably just three buckets of suspects. Number one is probably the Romans. Could the Romans have done it? Of course they could have. They had the means to steal that body. A suspect's got to have means and motive, and the Romans had the means. Pilate had put a garrison of 16 Roman soldiers, four standing up and 12 in a semicircle around that tomb. Round the clock. They could have done it. No doubt they could have done it. But what would have been their motive? They were the very ones that had him killed. And so you say, well, maybe somebody bribed them. Okay, maybe somebody bribed them. But Pilate had ordered an official Roman seal be put on that tomb. And if that seal was tampered with, Anybody that disturbed that seal, they did it upon the threat of death. And those Roman soldiers, they knew that. They weren't stupid. They knew it. So would it have been worth stealing some, to them, just some itinerant preacher? Would it be worth death to a Roman centurion to go in there and steal to them just some itinerant preacher's body? No. So you had the Romans. Then you had maybe it was the Jews that stole the body. Maybe it was the Jews. What would have been their motive? The only motive I can really think of for the Jews to have stole his body is if they thought 
that the disciples were going to steal the body and then say that he was resurrected. So maybe the Jews went in there and stole it to preempt that from happening. And then they could produce the body if the disciples said that he had risen. But guess what? They never did that. It never happened. And they certainly would have done it if they had been able to. Because that would have been the fastest way to shut up this whole Jesus thing that was going on. So you had the Romans, you had the Jews, and then you had the disciples. Could the disciples have maybe stolen that body? Well, first of all, how are they going to sneak past 16 Roman soldiers? And think about this. Would stealing his body have really served their purposes? If there's a scam, if there's a fraud, if there's some hoax being done, somebody's got to have something to gain out of that. Money or power or something to warrant the deception that they were, uh, that they were doing. And so, look at the evidence. Y'all, this is about the best evidence. Look at the evidence. What did, if, they, if the disciples did it, what did their new testimony get them? Their testimony didn't get them power. Because for their whole lives, they were pursued to death. All of them were willingly tortured and then killed for their confession. Peter had to watch his wife crucified. And the very next day, Peter himself is crucified upside down because he looked at them and said, I'm not even worthy to die like my Lord. So it didn't get them power. It didn't get them money. All of them were poor and anything they had, they gave it away. They taught Christians, the early Christians, they taught them to live joyfully without power and without money because they said our kingdom is not of this world. They said we can put up with the misery here because we are assured of a kingdom there. And that assurance is based on the resurrection of Christ. Would they have taught that? Would they have lived that way themselves if they knew that it was a scam and that they had stolen the body? Man, people don't do that. You don't die for something you know is a lie. You could die for something that you believe, if you really believe it. Sure you could. But you're not going to die willingly for something you know to be a scam. People just don't do that. So this theory that somebody stole the body is just kind of not convincing. And so there's really, there's really nobody who has the means and the motive. There really isn't. And so, number one is, could somebody have stolen the body? I say no. Number two kind of theory is that Jesus didn't really die. He really didn't die, quite die on the cross. He just passed out on the cross. And when, and when they put him in the tomb, he revived and he snuck out of the tomb and he appeared to a few of the disciples and he convinced a few of them that he, may, that he had come back to life and then he went off to Europe and got married and had three kids, two dogs and a fish. That's some theory out there. But a couple of problems with that theory other than the utter stupidity of it is this. The Romans were experts at crucifixion. They were experts at execution. And they knew when somebody was dead. Roman law said if they pulled a, a, a guy off a cross before he was dead, then they themselves would be put on the cross and be put to death. They knew when people were dead. In fact, just to make sure, the, the, the Bible says that they pierced his heart. They pierced his heart and blood and water came out. And so, by the way, let me tell you what's significant about that little tidbit that the Bible records that blood and water came out. We know something medically today that they didn't know then when that was written, that after somebody dies, 
the blood and the watery serum in the body, they kind of separate. And so to have seen blood and water would indicate that Jesus was dead prior to the spear going in his side. It is medical verification of his death, the significance of which they wouldn't have known. The guys just wrote what they saw. They couldn't have made that up. They didn't know medically that that had anything to do with it. And the second problem, second problem with the theory that Jesus really didn't die is that he had been beaten mercilessly and horrifically right prior to the crucifixion. And y'all, Roman beatings usually resulted in death. Roman beatings ended up in disembowelment, in ribs being ripped out of the rib cage, in a bloody, a bloody, bloody pulp of a person. So this is probably why Jesus died before the guys that were on his right and left because they had not endured the merciless beating that he had. And so the point here is this. If anybody were to survive a crucifixion, which they didn't, but if they were, it would not have been somebody that had been whipped so brutally and lost so much blood as he did. The third problem with this whole idea that he survived is if he had somehow, which he didn't, but if he had, put in that tomb and survived, how did he roll back a three-ton stone and slip past 16 guards unknown and then go in the condition he's in, beaten, can't move, a bloody pulp, go and see his guys and say, I'm God. It just, it, option number two that he uh, didn't really die is just plain dumb. Now, third option is that he really did rise from the dead. This is a best evidence thing, that he really did rise from the dead. It's the simplest explanation. It's the most compelling explanation that he rose, that he appeared to his disciples, that he commissioned them to go around the world telling folks about it, and if it cost them their lives, which it did, gladly. You know why? Because they had seen him with their own eyes. They touched him. They talked to him. They walked with him. They ate with him. They hung out with him. They saw all of that with their own eyes. And it did cost them their lives. It's what I said before. People don't die for something they know to be a lie. They don't. Well, if this is the simplest and the most compelling explanation, why doesn't everybody believe it? Because y'all do know that everybody doesn't believe it. I'm sure that there are many people here that have not investigated it and don't believe it. And so I read something, y'all, last week, and, and, it, and it is a guy named Wolfhart Pannenberg. He said, the evidence uh, of Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual, miraculous event. And second, if you believe it happened, it's got to change the way you live. So it's an unusual, miraculous event. And there are some people, y'all, I know, put me in this bucket 16 years ago. There's some people that do not want to even consider a supernatural explanation for anything. And crazy enough, these are the people that they say it's in the, in the good name of science, as if taking science seriously means refusing to consider all of the evidence to include miraculous evidence. Let the evidence lead you where the evidence leads you. And the reality 
is that closing yourself off to whatever the evidence is is the very definition of closed-mindedness. And then there are other people that they question this because it demands life change. If Jesus really went into that grave really dead and he ran out of that grave really alive, that means he's Lord over everything. He's Lord over morality. He's Lord over ethics. He's Lord over salvation, over science, over history, over sociology, over everything. Look, I got a good friend of mine, and he, he cannot get past the idea that there's suffering in the world, the idea that there's evil in the world. And he says there's no way that God raised Jesus from the dead and left so much suffering in the world. But guys, that's not an honest consideration of the evidence. That is ignoring the evidence because you walked in and already made your mind up before you even looked at it. And you're putting things into that, into that question that don't belong there. So I want to ask you this question. Every one of you, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever considered evidence on its own terms? Or are there reasons that you won't even consider the evidence? You may say, well, if the resurrection is true, why is the world still such a mess? Why did my life turn out the way it did? Or God, why aren't you more involved in the world? If you showed up every once in a while, it'd be a good thing. Or why are there so many different religions that maybe people all say that they're true? Why is that? Or maybe, just maybe, you don't want anybody telling you what's right and wrong. But none of that has anything to do with whether Jesus ran out of that grave alive. So I want to challenge all of us to be open-minded enough this morning to consider the evidence on its own terms. To walk with Peter into that empty tomb. And if you do that, the resurrection means three things. It meant three things to Peter, and it means three things to us today. Number one is that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. If he really rose from the dead, then he is exactly who he said he was. Regardless of the perceptions that we walk in there with. Y'all, my disbelief doesn't change the facts. Your disbelief, it doesn't change the facts. He either went in there dead and came out alive or not, and if I don't believe it, it doesn't change what happened. I'm not that important that my belief is going to change what happened in that grave 2,000 years ago. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they get in this really interesting argument with a bunch of academics and theologians. You know, smart guys who say they're open-minded are usually closed-minded. And so they're talking to these theologian guys. And these guys are saying Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah because of X, Y, and Z. And all the smart people of the day agreed that it couldn't be true. Acts chapter 4 in verse 19 says this, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you've got to be the judge of that. For we cannot, listen to these words, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, they said, Look, brothers, we're not saying we're smarter than you. You've got more degrees hanging on your wall than a thermometer. We're not saying that we're smarter than you. But then on the other hand, we know this guy who came back from the dead. We saw it. We were there. We touched him. We talked to him. We sat down and ate with him. We saw all of that happening. And no offense to you, Mr. Smart People, his coming back from the dead trumps your Ph.D. in theology. Do y'all get that? It does, if it really happened. And I know, man, I know, 
Me and you can't get in some time capsule and go back in time and physically stand there with Jesus and poke our finger through a hole in his arm or his hand or his feet. We, I know that we can't do that. But I also know this. The evidence that we have, the best evidence that we have, is enough for us to come to a conclusion about it. The breakdown is not in the insufficiency of the evidence. The breakdown is something that we've already decided is untrue when we walk in to look at the evidence. And I want to be very personal with you. This is how faith in Christ worked for me, personally. I had all these questions. You know what? No, I didn't. I didn't have questions. I just had unbelief. I didn't believe any of it. I thought it was a bunch of junk, a bunch of malarkey, terrible doubt, unbelievable doubt. I'm trying to disprove it 16, 17 years ago. I pick up a Bible. I say, I'm going to read the Bible, but none of it's true. But I'm going to read it anyway. Y'all, to make a long story short, from page 1 to the end, it all points to Christ. From in the beginning to the end of the revelation, it all points to Christ. Every, it all points to today, 2,000 years ago. And y'all, I didn't know no ologies. I didn't know any of that junk. All I knew is every word in that book is true. And all I knew was that I was bringing nothing to the table other than the sin that made the cross necessary. That's all I knew. I knew that I was busted and broken and I couldn't fix it myself. And I knew that all I had to do, and it makes no sense, all I had to do was believe. You mean I didn't have to do anything? No, I don't have to do anything. All I had to do was believe. And I believed every word of that. My favorite definition of faith is this, that faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. When something I cannot explain gets right in the face of what I know to be true. And the Bible is full of that. And when that happens, one of two things is going to happen to you. You'll refuse to even consider the evidence until God somehow explains every single little thing to you. Or, number two, you'll humble yourself before God and you'll say, Okay, God, I'll consider the evidence on its own terms, realizing that you just may know more than me. And you may just have ways of running the universe that you have not let Ed in on. And I don't have to understand everything. Y'all, saving faith is not having all of your questions answered right at this moment. It is wrestling with the unexplainable. Do you think God wants you to be stupid? No, no. Wrestle with the evidence. Wrestle with what's unexplainable. Dig. If this is true, it will withstand any amount of pressure you put on it. You know what? If it's not true, then it won't. But if it is true, it'll withstand all the... It's been withstanding pressure for two, three, four thousand years. And it's kind of held up on its own. You may pride yourself on being a super smart dude and you're very skeptical and I, and I understand that. But my question is, are you willing today in light of the resurrection to just consider doubting your doubts a little bit. And so back to Peter. Because of the resurrection, Peter realized that his past no longer defined him, and neither does yours. I told you a little while ago, Peter felt like he had let Jesus down so much that he had busted that relationship beyond repair. But here's what Peter said in 1 Peter some 20, 30 years later. He said, through the resurrection, we're born again. We're born again into a living hope kept for us in heaven. There's two things in there that will totally change how you see 
yourself, born again and living hope. Y'all, hope is, is whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. And most people in the world, I did for 36 years, most people believe that God's acceptance of them is based on how good they are, on how well they keep all the rules and the regulations of their, quote, religion. And you may think that works fine for you, just fine for you until you fail, like Peter. And then you start wondering, how good is good enough? I spent 36 years of my life worrying about how good is good enough. You know what? There ain't no such thing as good enough. Christ is good enough. The gospel is that Christ earned our acceptance in our place. He paid the penalty for the sin. He is good enough. The resurrection is God's declaration that He's accepted that payment of, uh, on our behalf. In the resurrection, He declared that Jesus' payment is sufficient. I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't. But that death on that cross, culminating in the resurrection, was sufficient to pay for me. And now Jesus stands alive at the throne testifying every day to that. That's why Peter says, I have a living hope kept in heaven for me. It's safe and it's secure. And, and the living Jesus stands there as my acceptance into a heavenly eternity. Whenever there's an accusation y'all brought against me, I do something stupid. I sin again and I sin again and I should definitely be rejected from God's presence. Jesus says, I got it, bro. I done paid for that. In fact, I done paid for the one that you're going to do tomorrow that you don't even know you're going to do tomorrow. And you know, most people in our culture believe that all religions teach the same thing and lead to the same place. They don't. They don't. Our hope is not in how good we live. Our hope is not in how right I act. It's not. Our hope is in the Christ that took the hit for us. There's a difference. Other religions teach us how good you are. You can't be good enough. He took care of that. So in the, res in the resurrection, I have a, a living hope that's not based on me, and thank God, y'all, that it's not based on me. Peter says in the resurrection that I'm born again, and that means God's starting this process of, an, of creating a new me, of breathing new life into me, and the power of the resurrection turned Peter who was a Jesus-denying coward, into Peter the rock. And the same power of that Holy Spirit can do that for you today. Today. You may have walked off that street out there into here questioning and wondering what's true. Sitting in the chairs out there, y'all, there are stories of past that are filled with the most tragic of mistakes. Big mistakes. Little mistakes. You said nasty things to your dad that you can't ever take back. You, you, you spoke crazy, hurtful things to your kids. You were on drugs. You were unfaithful to your wife. You were unfaithful to your husband. You were kicked out of school. You went to jail. You had a, a, a bracelet on your ankle so the government could track you, whatever it is. You were filled with bitterness. You were filled with hate. You were, you were, you were filled with, with racism. But God changed you. He's in the change in business, y'all. He changed you, and not because you were a decent person who needed a second chance, but because you were dead, and He made you alive. Did you come in here today feeling so jacked up 
that God would never have anything to do with you. That your mistakes, they're just too much. The pain that you cause your family is just too bad. The addictions are just too strong. The God that I know, the God that I met 16, 17 years ago, He breathed life into a dead body. He breathed courage into a cowardly Peter. He breathed love into a murderous Paul. When you believe, He will breathe new life into you. So Peter realized that his past didn't define him and your past doesn't define you. Don't buy that lie from hell. It is a lie. When you are forgiven, those sins are put as far as the east is from the west. Your past does not define you. And finally, Peter knew that his future was secure. He said, through the resurrection, we now have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And one of the things you learn when you get older, and I'm 53 years old, is that everything in the world spoils, perishes, and fades. Riches go away. Health taken away just like that. All gone, gone in a day. You can't hold on to any of it. You can't take any of it with you. Every single one of us sitting here are going to die a physical death. And the life of belief and unbelief is never more contrasted than how an unbeliever and a believer approach the reality that we're all going to die a physical death. Listen to the hopelessness in this. I asked my mama 15 years ago, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And her answer was, I don't care, I'll be dead. Y'all, that's hopeless. It's hopeless. And I contrast that with a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian author. She's in a car accident, paralyzed. She can't, she can't walk. She can't run. She said she felt sad at first. And one day she caught herself having a pity party. And she's envying people. She's not envying them because they can walk and run. She's envying them because they can get up and then get down on their knees and pray. That's why she's envying them. And she says this. She said, then it occurred to me, the first thing I'm going to do when I get my new legs is I'm going to drop to my knees and I'm going to worship the Jesus that saved me. And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to do a backflip. Y'all, that's the assurance of the resurrection. So what you going to hope in? Guys, it's all about the resurrection. The resurrection tells me Jesus is who He said He was. It tells me that He's making me into a new creation. Most of the time, it's slow that He's doing it. And this new me or this new you this morning, sometimes we're different. Sometimes we're shockingly different, and sometimes we're a little bit different. Y'all, I can be kind because He rose. I can handle adversity now because He rose. You can be a better wife or a husband or a wife or a father or a son or a daughter or a cousin. You can be a better friend because he rose. I can be a better pastor, a better shepherd because he rose. Because he changes everything. The cross and the empty tomb change everything. I can love like he loves because he rose. And it's little things and it's big things. I remember being a coach in Little League Baseball. I acted like a complete idiot on the field slinging my hat, kicking dirt on umpires, cussing like a moron, screaming and just being a fool. And I got saved in January of 2002. And God just took it away. Sometimes, you know, He just takes stuff away. I wish He'd take it all away, but sometimes He takes something away. He took that away from me. And about two months later, I'm coaching one of Zach's ball games. About two months after I got saved, coaching one of Zach's ball games, and I didn't act like an idiot on the field. And one of our parents walked up and said, said, 
there's something different about you. What happened? And I told them, what happened? 27 months ago, I had a doctor look me and Susan in the eyes, and he looked at me and he said, the biopsy's positive. You got prostate cancer. Jesus immediately said to me, I got this. Lean on me. And we did, and he did. And in the grand scheme, one of those things is a little thing, and one of those things is kind of a big thing. But you know what? Y'all, they're both unexplainable and undeniable. They're unexplainable and undeniable. The only way that I can explain, I was there. I saw it happen. That's why the guys went to their death for the resurrection because they saw him. It was the best evidence. The best evidence is that's what happened. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is useless. Y'all, your faith is not useless because he ran out of that grave. And here's the deal. If you have never believed, if you've never believed, it ain't hard. There ain't no ologies involved. You'll need some seminary degree. It's very, very simple. It is repent, repent, and believe. Repent. What's repentance? It's a change. I'm changing my mind the way that I look at sin. I spent 36 years looking at sin on my side. When I repent, I look at sin from God's perspective. All it is is repent. I change my mind. I look at things differently, and I believe. What's the content of my belief? That Christ died on the cross to take care of my sin and rose again to prove that. It's not hard. And yeah, I'm asking you to believe, but you know what? You can't have my belief. You can't have your mama's faith. It don't work that way. You got to decide for yourself. And you know what? People don't argue with conclusions they come to on their own. They don't. You got to believe for yourself. And so here's my question. If today's the day that you peeked into that tomb and you found it empty and you said, oh my gosh, this is real. I really believe that what I believe is really real. It's really empty. And the how that it got empty is he walked out of it alive. If you believe that today, if you believe that today, I want, you know what, I want you all to close your eyes, bow your heads, and if that happened to you today, if you went in that grave and you realized that it's real, I want you to just say, you know, don't be raising your hands unless you want to. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't be screaming out loud unless you want to, but you can pray quietly right there to yourself, but just pray this. Lord, I've changed my mind about sin today. I spent all kind of years, Lord, on my side of sin. And so I repent of that, and I want to be on your side of sin today, Lord. And I do believe that you died for me. And I do believe that you ran out of that grave alive. And, Lord, I want your Holy Spirit to live inside of me, and I want you to be my leader and my forgiver for the rest of my life. And, Lord, I love you. In your son's name, amen. Look, here's the deal, man. If that happened to you today, you went from lost to found. The heavens are just screaming with joy. He will pursue you up a tree. Do y'all get that? And if that happened to you today, don't, I'm going to say this, I'm going to caution you. Don't set the bar that all of a sudden you're going to be perfect because that ain't going to happen. Because you know what? We don't allow perfect people here. So if you get perfect, you can't come back. If you get perfect, you can't come back. But I'm telling you, man, you got a defense now. You got a defense. 
you got somebody you can lean on every day. And so my, I'm telling you, if that happened to you today, we've got a, pray, a little prayer tent over here. Come pray with somebody if you want to. Find somebody in one of these shirts and pray with them. You know what? If this is not your church home, go back to your church home and find somebody to tell what happened. You need to talk with people. You need to hang out with other believers. And you need to talk it out because what will happen is you'll set yourself up on this pedestal. I did it when I got saved. I was like a zealot when I got saved. And then I sinned and I thought, oh my gosh, then I must not be saved. And then I looked in the mirror and said, you know what? That ain't what the cross means. Because you know what? He done paid for all of it. Every bit of it. And so I really want to encourage you to get with people and talk. Let us know on that connection card and drop it in one of these buckets that will come by or take it up there to the welcome tent and get you a free gift. But let us know. Not so that I can come over to your house and tackle you in the driveway, but so that we can pray for you. That's all we want to do is pray for you. So let me pray one more time and then, uh, and then we're going to turn it back over. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for being a God that changes everything. And Lord, I thank you for the people that made you their leader and their forgiver today. I thank you that their lives are going to be different. Maybe shockingly different, maybe just a little bit different, but different nonetheless. And so Lord, I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.